We welcome each one to our adult Sunday school this morning and trusting in the Lord's blessing as we gather together. I'm going to going to seek the Lord in prayer first and then we'll turn to uh, the word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before thee this morning rejoicing uh, in thee, our God and our Saviour. We thank thee we can come to thy house afresh and uh, look to thee and and we thank thee we can come and worship thee this day. And Father, we pray that as we commence our day in thy house with this time around thy precious word and around considering the faith of saints long ago, Father, encourage us, apply these truths to our hearts. May it not just be, as it were, cold, dry history, the hard facts of history, but Father, may our hearts be stirred and may we be thankful for those who came before us, who gave their lives, who suffered, so that the cause of Christ would continue. And Father, we thank thee for thy hand upon thy cause. As we've seen already, men have sought to destroy thy word and thy testimony and thy faith. And Father, we pray that we would be mindful that thou art on the throne protecting and preserving thy people and thy word and thy church. Father, preserve us, we pray. Help us to stand against the foe to the glory of thy name and bless our hearts. We do remember the children and the teachers downstairs. Bless them also and may they know thy hand upon them for good. Father, do us good, bless us and may we glorify thy name, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to turn again in the Word of God to those passages that we considered uh, the previous two Lord's Days, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 5. Second Timothy chapter 3. And the verse number 10, the apostle says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learnt and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Then Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and the verse 11, verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his precious word this morning. The last two Lord's Days we have been considering the various periods of persecution within the early church uh, from around uh, before 100 AD up to the start of the 3rd century. And of course, uh, when we think of the 3rd century, we're talking about the 200s. When we think of the 21st century, we're talking about uh, the 2000s, 2002, 2004, 2023, and uh, the 3rd century is the 200s. And so we have considered uh, some of these persecutions, period of ten persecutions, and we're coming to consider uh, the last of them today. But coming to the start of the third century then, it was a time of relative peace and growth for Christians. There was also material growth within the church, and that saw buildings being set aside for the sole use of the church and for the worship of God. And so we see the early church buildings uh, coming together. Uh, there were many Christians who were well off and rich, or many who came into the church and believed, who had uh, substantial finances, and in various places that enabled uh, buildings, etc., uh, to be erected. The first Christian cemetery was built in Rome, and there was a positive attitude then shown to Christianity by the emperors, especially Emperor Alexander Severus, who reigned from 222 to 235, 222 to 235, I should have said 222 to 235, that might have been much easier. But he asked the Christian scholar, a man by the name of Julius Africanus, to organize the public library of Rome. This man also wrote a 24-volume encyclopedia, amongst other things, and uh, the emperor himself also had images of Christ placed alongside pagan images in his own private chapel. And his mother had once met with Oregon to discuss religious matters. And so he had a, a soft heart toward Christianity. And he certainly did not persecute the Christians and sought to give Christ esteem alongside the pagan images. And of course you may say immediately, hang on a second, there's a problem here. Uh, because he's not only having images of Christ, but he's placing them alongside his pagan images. And of course, that is a problem. We do not agree with that. Uh, but we're saying that not in approval of this, uh, but to show that he had a softer heart to Christianity compared to those who came before and would come afterwards. And of course, uh, there is much debate within the church and regarding the use of images, there are many believe it is a breach of the second commandment, having images of Christ. And uh, that is uh, something that certainly should be considered. And we uh, don't have images of Christ. Uh, we don't use images of Christ in his worship. Uh, we don't have statues. We don't have paintings adorning the walls of this church uh, because uh, we believe uh, that those are graven images. We don't need an image of Christ to worship Christ. And uh, we worship him in spirit and in truth. And of course we worship Christ and not 
anyone else. We worship the Lord and no one else. And we come here today to worship God. We're not coming to worship every other God and every other pagan God of man's imagination. We worship God solely. And that is the Christian position. And of course, this emperor did not worship God solely. But we say these things to show this softening of his heart towards the Christians regarding persecution. The next emperor, Philip, 244 to 249, was also more receptive to the Christian faith, but he was a victim of a military coup, and one of his generals, a man called Decius, took control of the empire. And that brings us then into another period of persecution, the persecution under Decius. He was born in 201 in modern-day Serbia, became emperor 249, and died in 251. And so uh, he uh, had this coup, he became emperor, he took control, and it only lasted a few years before he died in battle against a foreign enemy, and the first Roman emperor to do so. But he had the belief that the church was a threat to the stability and the unity of the empire, as anti-Christian feeling was on the rise from about 247. In that year, Christians had refused to join the pagan celebrations that marked the 1,000th anniversary of the founding of Rome. The next year, the Goths, a group of northern Germanic tribes, carried out a series of invasions on the empire. And at this time, Oregon recorded that the anti-Christian feeling began to rise throughout the empire. Odysseus then unashamedly blamed Christians for the problems within the empire, and he claimed that the gods were angry because Christians were drawing many people away from worshipping the gods themselves. And he began a universal persecution of the church, and church leaders in Jerusalem and Rome and Antioch were executed. A Cyprian of Carthage escaped death by going into hiding. hiding. Uh, well-known early church uh, father. And Decius also commanded every inhabitant of the empire to make sacrifices to the gods, and to obtain certificates that stated that they had obeyed the order of the emperor. Many Christians refused. And they said, we cannot do that. We cannot offer sacrifices to false gods, to the emperor. We cannot worship anyone else but the God of heaven. And they were executed. And as we consider these persecutions, we've mentioned before, Christians refused to do these things. And that was a matter of conscience, a matter concerning their faith in the Lord. They stood firm. That was the belief of their heart. God came first. And they could not deny their Savior by doing these things. There were others who gave in by sacrificing to the gods, or they purchased fake certificates to lie about their obedience to the emperor. During the reign of Trajan, it had been noted on the statute books, we mentioned this last week, that Christians were not to be sought out for punishment. But under the new emperor, this changed. It is said that historians are agreed that this persecution was more cruel and terrible than any that preceded it. It was most unfortunate that the Christian church was not prepared for it. Worldly ease and prosperity and error had crept into its ranks. And instead of presenting a united, faithful witness they were at variance with each other. The historian Rennick said the wily serpent proved more dangerous than the roaring lion. They were not prepared. And that's one of the things we're going to mention later on about persecution. The church is rarely prepared for it. 
If persecution came upon us, if the doors suddenly opened, soldiers marched in to take us away, we're not prepared for that. We're not expecting that. How do we deal with that? We can think of uh, COVID and in the Christian church in general, we were not prepared for it. Uh, there were churches, well, areas where churches uh, were commanded to be closed. There were legal cases that stemmed from a lot of these things and there was division within the church as to what direction should we go? Should we obey? Uh, should we say no? Uh, what direction should we go? And uh, we can see even in that regard, the church was not prepared for it. The church had never considered what should we do if there's a pandemic and we have to close our doors. In all my theological training, in all the reading that I've done prior to 2020, I never came across that subject at all. And yet, in the last few years, it has been a hot topic within Christianity. And so we can see even in that sense, we were not prepared. And for persecution itself, the church was not prepared for it. They had a comfortable time, a time of blessing, a time of growth. And worldly ease and prosperity and error had crept in. And these things called, caused problems. Philip Schaff, the historian, wrote of Decius in this persecution. He said that he was an earnest and energetic emperor. And some of these emperors uh, were good leaders and good emperors in the sense of there was prosperity, uh, there was the defense of the realm, and uh, the empire itself benefited. However, they were sinful, wicked, and corrupt. The old Roman spirit was in him. It resolved to root out the church as an atheistic and seditious sect, atheistic being that they believed in one God, uh, whereas the Roman Empire, its religions were religions that were polytheistic. And that word poly meaning many, so many gods, the, theos being the Greek word for God. And so theism, polytheism is many gods, monotheism, which is where we stand, is one God. And so because there was only one God, the church was often referred to as being an atheistic church. They didn't believe in any gods. And in the year 250, then, Decius published an edict to all the governors of the provinces, enjoining return to the pagan state religion under the heaviest penalties. And this was the signal for a persecution which exceeded all before it. And it, in truth, it was properly the first that covered the whole empire and accordingly produced a far greater number of martyrs than any former persecution. And so there's a long quote there from Shaft, and you can read that uh, yourselves. Moving on to the next persecution, we have uh, the persecution under Valerian. He was born in 199 and uh, began to reign, that should be began to reign, uh, or became emperor in 253, reigning until 260. He was the first emperor to be captured in battle. He was taken by the Persians at the Battle of Edessa, and this caused much shock and instability throughout the empire as he was held captive for the rest of his life. And Valerian severely persecuted Christians, especially in North Africa. Many believers there faced martyrdom. And Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage, and it was during this man's reign that he was put to death. Remember, during Decius, he had escaped. Uh, but he was born in the year 200. He professed faith in 246. And he was one of a group of able church leaders in North Africa during the 3rd century. Little is known of his early life, but he was a successful 
teacher of philosophy and a lawyer. And he was famed for eloquence. He was a man of high social standing. And he became a Christian at the age of 46 as a result of a friendship with an elder within the church. He sold his property. He gave money to the poor. And it appears that he abandoned his occupation and his social life and gave himself to study to poverty and celibacy. And even as early as Cyprian and before, practices were creeping into the church, which eventually led to their full practice later by the Roman Catholic Church, celibacy being uh, that they refrained uh, from marriage and from relationships and uh, gave themselves over to the study of uh, the Word of God and the Scriptures. And of course, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has made that a great teaching, uh, the bishops, the priests within uh, the Catholic Church uh, would be celibate, not allowed relationships, not allowed to marry, and so this was being practiced as early as 240, 260 thereabouts, and it became more fuller in its practice later on. And of course, we don't believe that that is biblical. Uh, there are men, ministers, uh, who are single, who have never married, and that's not necessarily because of a rule. Uh, that's because, I suppose, of circumstances. They just haven't married. And uh, in the past, uh, for a while, I was a licensed minister placed in churches. I wasn't married, and uh, now I am. And uh, there's no rule saying men have to be married or men... Men are not allowed to be married. And so uh, it, these things are open uh, to the will of God is the easiest explanation there. Uh, but yet, as we see in the Catholic Church, it is a rule not uh, to marry. Cyprian himself made a deep impression upon the church in Carthage. He was elected as a bishop and uh, an outbreak of persecution took place. This is when he left Carthage during Decius's reign. And in 254 then, Valerian issued two edicts in an attempt to destroy the church. All bishops or all subjects were to worship the Roman gods and Christians were forbidden to hold meetings or have access to church buildings. And other edicts condemned the clergy to death. On the last edict then, Cyprian refused to leave Carthage and he was arrested. He was only sentenced to exile at first, but he was later recalled for further trial. He refused to conform to the Roman rites, and uh, the pro-council said, you've lived long in an irreligious life and professed yourself to be an open enemy to the gods and religion of Rome. You will be made an example, and it is the sentence of this court that you, Cyprian, shall be executed by the sword. And so he uh, was taken out and was executed. The church in North Africa then began to further decay because of this persecution. And in the 7th century, it fell to the Muslim invasion and hundreds of churches became mosques or were totally destroyed. And so uh, the Christ Christian faith in that region, uh, only a few uh, survived. Valerian's son then, became emperor. He reigned from 260 to 268. He hated his father. He made no attempt to stage a rescue mission uh, to bring him back uh, to the throne. But he also abandoned his father's policy of persecuting the Christian church. He had no sympathy for the church. 
Uh, but being a philosopher, he believed that the effective weapon against Christianity was not the sword, it was not uh, fire, it was not the wild beasts, but it was persecution. And he therefore endeavored to promote Hellenism uh, throughout the empire, the Greek culture. He was assassinated with his family in 268. And it is sad to note then during these periods of persecution, the many Christians committed apostasy. They left the faith. They denied the Savior to save their lives from persecution. And there were splits in the churches because of the different attitudes towards those who wanted to return again after the periods of persecution. So persecution came upon a church. Some died. Others said, no, we will sacrifice and we will honor the Roman gods and the emperor. And they left the church and then persecution eased and these individuals then wanted to come back into the church. Well, they denied their faith. Others had died. But they lie or they denied their faith to save their lives. And so there were different attitudes about them coming again into the church of Christ in that local context. So the persecution then under Aurelian. Aurelian was born around 214. He reigned from 270 to 275. A Domitian had demanded to be officially honored as the Dominus et Deus, Master and God. These titles had never appeared on official documents then until Aurelian, uh, Domitian being one of the early emperors who persecuted Christians. His military successes against those who invaded the empire earned him another title, a restitutor orbis, restorer of the world. During his brief reign, another period of persecution broke out. He issued an edict uh, that ordered Christians to pay homage to the gods of Rome, and they were forbidden from meeting publicly and had no access to buildings or cemeteries. Another edict con condemned the clergy and their supporters to death, and his reign ended when he was murdered by someone within his household, and persecution ceased until the reign of Diocletian. And so, again, there was murder within the household. Uh, these emperors were power-hungry. Uh, those around them who wanted to seize power were power-hungry and desired uh, to engage in murder uh, for their objectives. And so we come to the final period of persecution. The emperor Diocletian was born around 242 to 245 in Dal Dalmatia. He became the emperor in 284, and he reigned for two years on his own, then co-reigned onto 305. Uh, there was an Eastern Empire and a Western Empire. It was not necessarily a split, uh, but a split in governments, governance. And so uh, it would be a little bit uh, like uh, North BC uh, kind of have their own system of government and here on the lower mainland we have our own system of government there's an emperor here and an emperor up there but we're really still all bc and uh, that is really what happened and so this final period of persecution was one of the severest upon the church he passed an edict in 305 that ordered the destruction of all church buildings all bibles were to be confiscated and of course it wasn't a bible like we have today but parchments and scrolls and Christians were forbidden to meet for worship. Another edict that year ordered the arrest of all church leaders. And again, another one ordered that church leaders were to sacrifice to the gods of Rome. And then they would be released. Refusals were met with execution. In 304, the emperor declared a special day 
for the empire to sacrifice to the gods. Everyone had to take part or face death. And one effect of such persecution was to show who were true believers in contrast to nominal Christians. Some church members did surrender and sacrifice, but among true believers there were some inspiring tales of heroism. There was Tolomena, who suffered greatly. She was, uh, they were tortured, imprisoned, put to death. There were other believers, thousands, who maintained a steadfast faith, and they were martyred. Diocletian abdicated in 305, and then persecution began to ease. And so the main periods of persecution eased. Again, there was persecution maybe locally in some places as time progressed, but in regard to the empire itself being against the church, this now came to an end. The emperor Constantine came to the throne in 306. He reigned until 337. His mother was a Greek Christian. And in 311, the edict of Sertica was issued by Galerius. He was a former persecutor, and this ended the period of persecution officially. Constantine himself then began to favor Christianity around 312 and in 313 he was influential in the Edict of Milan. This edict was an agreement to treat Christians with benevolence within the empire. It gave legal status to Christianity. It stopped any persecution but it did not make it the state religion. However, the new status of Christianity led to many false professions in order to gain power and influence within the empire, and the embracing of Christianity by the emperors then led to the acceptance of beliefs that would also influence the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. There was, in some ways, a blending of some pagan ideology with Christianity, and in reflecting then upon the persecutions of the church, we can rejoice that God had a people who were unashamed of the gospel and that he preserved his church through the worst of times. And when we think of Constantine, there's much more to say about Constantine. We're going to look in the future at some of the issues, uh, the false doctrines that arose in the early church. And then uh, we'll move into Constantine. We'll move into the Council of Nicaea uh, that took place around this time period as well and dealing with Arianism and so that's where we're going uh, the next few weeks. When we think of persecution, we spent three weeks looking at the various persecutions, giving an overview of what was taking place and when we think of what these believers suffered, it should challenge our hearts and it should challenge the depth of our love to Christ. Our love for Christ should be expressed in actions. It's not just naming his name. It's not just singing. It's not just, uh, as it were, being present in worship, but it is a love that should express itself in how we act towards our Savior. The term nominal had been mentioned there. And when we think of the persecution, it keeps the church pure. There are those who are nominal Christians and those we could say are passionate Christians. 
those who are on fire for God, those who love the Lord, those who are prepared to go and to be burned or to die by the sword or the beasts for their Savior. But when we think of the nominal uh, Christian, the nominal Christian, that name nominal, that term nominal, it means existing in name only. Existing in name only. And therefore, a nominal Christian is someone who only exists in name. That's their name. They're a Christian. But there's no evidence. They may come to church, but in their heart, there's not that passionate love for Christ there ought to be. There's not that growing relationship with God. There's not uh, that work of sanctification growing within their lives because they exist in name only. They're not really acting in that way. In the same way we could think someone can say, well, I support the local sports team, but yet you don't know what the result was yesterday. You've never watched them play. You've never kept up with how they're doing. You've no idea who their players are. You're a nominal fan. You say you support them. You say that that's your team, but in reality, how you live and how you act shows that you know very little about that particular team. And that's what we're saying about the nominal Christian. There's a name. They take that name, but there's a lack of actions, not merely external, but internal, that shows that you're not really a Christian. You're not really committed to the cause of Christ. And when persecution came, there were those who were nominal Christians who gave in to the persecution. And the demands. And they denied Christ. Because they were Christians in name only. And the same can be true of us today. We might not be facing persecution. But there are many nominal Christians within the church. They're happy to say, well I'm a Christian. And I love the Savior. And the Savior died for me. And they're happy with that knowledge that they believe they're saved. Because they've named the name of Christ. They believe that when they die, they'll go to heaven. But in regard to living the Christian life and serving the Lord and glorifying his name and standing against that which is wrong and forsaking sin, all these things are foreign concepts to them because they exist in name only. We're not to be nominal Christians. We're to be Christians on fire for the Lord. And when we think of the persecutions and those that gave their lives, that reminds us that we are to be passionate. And it encourages us and challenges our hearts to be passionate believers for the Savior. Persecution comes in many different forms, physically, legally, financially. There can be threats and intimidation, verbal abuse. There can be social ostracizing there can be this physical violence done to you as we've seen in these persecutions there can also be temptation to do wrong because these believers were tempted to deny Christ tempted to offer sacrifice to the empire to the emperor and to false gods to deny the savior being tempted to do wrong is also, as many will say, a form of persecution. And we should be mindful of that. We don't need to be took to the stake and burned to be persecuted. Persecution can come in many forms. 
And we should not be shocked when persecution does come upon us. I want you to turn to John 15. We've read verses already that remind us that those who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But in John 15 and uh, the verse 18, the Savior says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, and the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, and they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And so the Savior here is saying, the world hates us. The world hates the believer. We're not to be in a loving relationship with the world. We've been chosen out of the world. And therefore, there will be conflict between us and the world. And the world hates us because the world hates the Savior. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And these are other verses that remind us that uh, there is persecution. The Savior says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loveth his life for my sake shall find it. And what's the Savior saying? Has he come to divide families? Has he come to rip families apart? No. He's saying that there will be those in families who will believe in him and will be Christians. And because the world hates us, there'll be division within that family because there are those who hate the Savior. And he's reminding us that this hatred toward him can even be shown within the family unit. And therefore, we should not be shocked when persecution comes. We should be prepared for it as well. Christians can stumble if they are not ready. And therefore, we need to ask ourselves, are we ready if persecution should come? Are we ready to stand for Christ and suffer? And how do we face persecution? Well, we love and trust the Lord. We love and trust the Lord. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Very familiar verses. Proverbs chapter 3, the verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We're to love and trust the Lord. And when persecution comes upon us, we're ready because we have that love and trust in him to direct our paths. We're to pray. Acts chapter 4, as I've mentioned time and time again, those persecution came upon the church. Peter and John were told, don't preach or teach in the name of Christ. And so what did they do? They went back and they prayed. And we are to pray when persecution comes upon us. We're to be faithful to the scriptures. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And our faith is built up through the word and we're encouraged to stand for God through the scriptures. We're to choose our friends carefully. We're to have companions who 
encourage us in the Lord. Christians who will help us and enable us to build our faith by the help of the Spirit of God. Acts 4 again, who did Peter and John go to? They went, they went to their own company. They went back to the church. They went to their people, those that loved them, those who were the saved of God. And they prayed together. And in difficult times, we find support amongst the people of God. Is that not something we've maybe all experienced? We've sat in prayer meetings where others have been prayed for. We've sat in prayer meetings where we've been prayed for. We've known there have been prayer meetings where we've been prayed for. Maybe we've been unable to attend, but we know the prayers of God's people. We know the fellowship and the encouragement. And in times of persecution, having strong, close Christian friends that we can rely upon is an encouragement and a strength to our souls. We're to support faithful servants who face persecution. We're to pray for them. Across this world today, there are those who suffer persecution. And we as the church are to pray for them and to support them by any means that we can. And we're to remember the faithful servants. Why are we looking at persecutions? We're looking at persecutions because we are reminded that there are those who stood for Christ, those who were faithful unto death, those who stood firm. Hebrews 11 reminds us of that. Daniel reminds us of that. These believers we've mentioned during this period of persecution remind us of that and encourage us to continue standing where they stood. And finally, we're to remember our eternal reward. There's a great reward for the Lord's people. There's a great reward for those who endure and persevere to the end. A great eternal reward. Oh, that we would receive the crown and those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. How sad it would be to face the Savior, to stand before him, and we've denied him. We've denied him. We can think of someone, and we claim to them that we're their friend, that we're their best friend, that we do anything for them. And then they come to us one day and they say, I've heard, I have evidence, it's true. You've been going around and you've been telling others what a bad person I am. And you've been slandering me and gossiping about me and twisting the truth about me and denying that you were ever my friend. And how hurt, hurt they would be regarding your actions. How embarrassed you would be for others to know that that's how you treated someone who was your friend and when we think of the savior let us not treat him that way he's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother he's the one who did not deny us upon the cross but suffered for us let us not deny him let us stand firm in our faith let us remember our eternal reward so that we do get those words said to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. May the Lord bless his word for his name's sake. Let us pray. Our eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word today. We thank thee that we can remind ourselves of those who suffered in the past for thee and those who died and gave their lives for thee. And we thank thee, O God, uh, that we can be reminded uh, of this great challenge that comes to us to stand firm for our Savior, 
And Father, we pray that thou would enable us in every aspect of our lives to stand for thee, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. Father, we pray thou would part us now with thy blessing. Be with us as we come to worship thee in spirit and in truth. And do our souls good, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.